Hello everyone, welcome to part three of our series here titled Scroll at the Eight. Let me kind of start off with a story. It's a little bit embarrassing. I honestly don't know the answer to this, but um, this just happened this week. Uh, on Monday, my, my daughter Ruth uh, is starting to take swim class. So me and my wife, we go, and because of COVID, like we have to sit like far up as she's like in her swim class with her teacher. So we can kind of see her from afar. We wave at her every once in a while, but you know, she's so focused and obviously very stressed learning how to swim with her teacher. Once we finish, we get back in the car and she says, mommy, daddy, why were you guys looking at your phone the whole time? I froze because I wanted to be like, girl, aren't you probably, aren't you at some class? Like, why are you paying attention to what I'm doing? And it started made me thinking like, what am I teaching her that like, she sees me on my phone like, I don't know if she expects me to watch her the entire 30 minutes of her some class. I don't know. To me, I looked at it. Okay, like, she's in her some class. That's my time for me to catch up on emails and texts from people and so forth and so on. Anyway, I don't know the answer, but it just made me think, like, that's the world we live in. That she is getting used to seeing me on my phone. What's happening to her wiring? What is? What am I expressing for her to see me on the phone a lot? I don't know. But in either case... Get this, isn't this crazy to think about that we spend more time scrolling, we spend more time scrolling, just, just being busy on our phone, just scrolling away, than we do eating every day. We spend more time on our phone scrolling than we do eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's kind of mind-boggling. That just shows how much of our time is going to, to being on our phone. If you're like me, I definitely like to have like zero notifications on my phone. Like I want to make sure I get through my texts, get through my emails. I like that. I get stressed when I look at my wife's phone and when I see 500 plus emails, I, I don't like that. I unsubscribe to things I don't want anything to do with to try to keep it simple. I want to make sure that there, there, there's a chemical reaction going on of us getting joy out of our phone of us just being consumed by our phone and just con continually scrolling away. Shout out to Aza Raskin, talked about him in part one. He's the inventor of the infinite scroll. And he, I kind of shared his story of how he kind of regrets inventing the infinite scroll. But in either case, why we're talking about all of this is that for many of us, we use our consumption of our phone, consumption of digital content, the consumption of just scrolling away to run away from stress pressure, anxiety, the reality of this world, that we use it as, as an escape way to just get away from real life by us just rolling, scrolling away. And a byproduct of that is that makes us emotionally unhealthy. It makes us emotionally unhealthy. It, it throws off so many aspects of our lives. There was a statistic done uh, looking at middle school and high schoolers. So the, the specifically, it was from 7th to 12th graders. So they noticed this. This is their, from their study. Students who spend two hours or more on social media every day reported higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. So for middle school and high schoolers, students who spend two hours or more on social media, spend two hours or more just kind of scrolling away, report higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. It's, it's, it's throwing us off balance chemically, psychologically, socially, emotionally, and obviously all that is bottled into spirituality. It's affecting every aspect of our life. It's making us emotionally unhealthy just by our, our, our overusage of phone, of our overuse of us scrolling away. About 100 years ago, personal hygiene started to become more of a, of, of a normal daily practice as far as our, 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 our diet, our health, brushing our teeth. D daily habits that maybe we don't think twice about now that we do, is it, like that became a normal thing 
uh, about 100 years ago. And once that became more of a normal thing for most people in America, life expectancy went up by 50%. Life expectancy went up. That's for a personal hygiene. Think about emotional hygiene, right? That's, that's two words you really don't hear to, to put together. Emotional hygiene. Imagine if we took care of our emotional health. Imagine what would that do to our mental health, to our social health, to our spiritual health, all of that spiritual, the, the, the impact that would come, the fruit that would come if we prioritized and took care of our emotional health. Why we're talking about this is because we scroll away from reality to just, to, just to consume us, just to, to, to be, think about it. Last time maybe you've had an argument with your spouse or with a kid or something, what do you do? Whatever, you just, just, just lay on the couch, just scroll away after a long day of, of work or school, what do you do? You just open up Netflix and just, just become a zombie and we just scroll away, we just consume ourselves maybe to run away from reality. Last week we looked into an 11th century BC uh, uh, Jewish leader of, of the kingdom of Israel. His name is Saul. And we saw him make one poor life decision after another, after another, after another. We can see that looking outside into his story, but he cannot see that. And come on, we've all kind of seen that. We've seen that with other friends or coworkers or family members where they, we see them making poor life decisions, but to them, they, they're not doing anything wrong. They're nothing, like they're doing everything right. And they just say, oh, you don't get it. You don't get my life. You don't understand. But they keep on making one poor life decision after another. We can see that from outside in, but they're not able to see it themselves. And maybe for a lot of us, like we can see that in others, but the question is, do we see it in ourselves? Are we having clarity within ourselves to see, am I making poor life decisions? And maybe a reason for that is because maybe we are emotionally unhealthy. We are masking our emotions. We're suppressing our emotion. We're trying to run away from it, from to, hide, to hide away from emotion or something that might be running through us. And we try to avoid it altogether. It's easier. It's easier for us just to have more noise, to have more volume, to just be more busy, to just scroll away so we don't have to think about reality or have to embrace the hardship that is in in front of us or the emotion that's coming up within us. We saw his emotionally unhealthy state. We looked at Saul. But there was somebody that came after Saul who was the exact opposite of him being extremely emotionally healthy. Check out this video that kind of captures the reality of Saul and the person who came after him as far as seeing their differences in leadership and more importantly the differences in their emotional and spiritual health. The Israelites come to Samuel and they say, hey, we want a king like all the other nations have. Go find one for us. And so Samuel, he's kind of ticked off and he goes to consult with God. And God says, yes, their motives are all wrong, but if a king is what they want, give them one. And so we're introduced to the figure of Saul. Now, Saul is a tragic figure because he begins full of promise. He's tall, he's good looking, he's a perfect candidate for a king, but he has deep character flaws. He's dishonest, he lacks integrity, and he seems incapable of acknowledging his own mistakes. And so these flaws become his downfall. He wins some battles at the beginning, but his flaws run so deep, he eventually disqualifies himself by blatantly disobeying God's commands. And so the aging Samuel confronts Saul and Israel. He had warned the people that they would only benefit from a king who's humble and faithful to God. Otherwise, the kings of Israel will bring ruin. So he informs Saul that God is going to raise up a new king to replace him. 
And so Saul's downfall begins, as God at the same time is working behind the scenes to raise up that new king. It's an insignificant shepherd boy named David. He's the least likely candidate to be king, but the famous story of David and Goliath shows that God's choice of David is not based on his family status, but simply on his radical and humble trust in the God of Israel. And so this story embodies all of the themes of Hannah's poem. Proud Saul and Goliath are brought low, while humble David is exalted. From here, we watch Saul slowly descend into madness, while David rises to power. So David starts working for Saul as a general, and he's winning all of the battles, and he's also winning all of the fame. And so Saul gets jealous, and he starts chasing David around, hunting him, trying to kill him. David's done nothing wrong, and so David simply runs and waits in the wilderness. And here we see David's true character. He has multiple opportunities to kill Saul, but he doesn't. He simply trusts that despite Saul's evil, God will raise up a king for his people. What's interesting, too, is that many of the poems of David that you find in the book of Psalms are linked to this very period of his life, and they all express the same attitude of trust. And so this section of the book ends with Saul coming to a grisly death after losing a battle with the Philistines. First Samuel tells some of the most intricate, well-told stories you find anywhere in the Bible. And the characters Saul and David, they're portrayed very realistically. And the author's putting them forward as character studies so that you can find yourself in them. So in Saul's story, we see a warning. It's crucial that we reflect on our own character flaws and how they harm us and other people. And with God's help, we need to humble ourselves and deal with our dark side so that Saul's story doesn't become ours. David, on the other hand, is presented as an example of patience and trust in God's timing in our lives. And so he's running in the wilderness, being chased by Saul. David had every reason to think that God had abandoned him, but that's not what he thinks. And so David's story encourages us to trust that despite human evil, God is working out his purposes to oppose the proud and to exalt the humble. And that's what 1 Samuel is all about. It's so interesting to look that you have these two characters, Saul and David, both coming to God with a repentant heart in, in their own time, but how they responded or how they genuinely came to God with a repentant heart is very different. Saul, I mean, David came with a very repentant, genuine, authentic heart, desiring to be made whole, desiring to become the man that God has called him to be. As he wrote in his journal in the Psalms, he says, Lord, I, I, I come with a broken heart, desiring to be made whiter than snow, as, we, as he wrote down in Psalm 50. You have Saul coming to God with a repentant heart, but his motive was how he looks in front of other people. He was masking a genuine, authentic pursuit of God by being driven by how other people view him. Let's face it. Some of us do that when it comes to social media, when it comes to, to, to scrolling away. Let me see how I look outside. Why am I not getting a certain amount of likes? Why isn't this going viral? You see what they posted, or I want people to, I'm being driven by external factors just for me to mask maybe an insecurity, maybe anxiety, maybe a void, maybe a flaw, maybe something I don't want to deal with, but maybe I can cover it up with noise, with busyness, with on the go, with more likes, with me going viral, my, but my influence, my popularity, maybe I can cover all those issues by just putting this mask outside. 
an early Christian by the name of St. Augustine. We spoke about him last week in part two. He was from modern-day Algeria, and he said these words, that the divine eye of God saw the difference in the heart between David and, and Saul. I love the language that he used, the, the, the divine eye. That, he, that, that, yeah, externally both were coming repentance and, yeah, I'm sorry, I did something wrong. But a huge difference between the two because God is looking at the inner life. God is desiring to see authentically how are we coming, desiring to be refined as his children. There was a huge difference between the two and the divine eye of God saw the difference clearly between the two. One was coming genuinely in a very vulnerable way to God. The other one was masking an insecurity because he was being driven by how other people view him. A description that we have of David that we have from Scripture is be, him being a, a man after God's own heart. Man, a man after God's own heart. That every fiber of his being was desiring to pursue God in every sense. Externally, he doesn't seem like a leader. He doesn't seem like a, a, a warrior. He doesn't seem like, he doesn't seem like that. And, and that's the beautiful thing. God, his divine eye of God was looking at something else in, in David. Him being so emotionally healthy. David was one of eight brothers, and God could have easily chosen any of, especially any of the seven older sons, but God, through Samuel, chose David to be the new leader, the new start, maybe for us to see what emotionally healthy spirituality looks like. Him being the eighth son, and that's a divine reflection or, or, or a symbolism of eight being a reflection or the reality of a new start, a new way of life, a new way of thinking, a, a, a mind shift, a heart shift for some of us. So, th so this is why our service here at San Mark Church is called The Eight. It's a time for us to renew and reset life, maybe for us to think differently. And my prayer for, for, for myself and for you in this series is for us to, to, to desire being emotionally healthy and not cover up maybe an emotion within us by scrolling away. King David had tons of hardships in his life. Either, like we have so much of his record from, from scripture. Actually, more is written about David than any other person besides Jesus in the entire scripture. So much is said about him, and we know some of it, so much of his hardship. Family drama, issues with, 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 with just so wide array of people, even to the point that Saul was trying to kill him. So many, a lot of his problems maybe are externally focused, but a lot of it too is internal focused problems as well. Maybe him making poor life decisions that just led him to regret and made one mistake after another. But the beautiful thing, the biggest difference of why David is someone that we honor and venerate to this day, centuries later, is how he came to bounce back and align himself up with God, even after acknowledging or seeing his flaws. He, just, he didn't try to cover it up, but he always came back to God with a broken heart, desiring to be made wider than snow. His vulnerability, his emotionally healthy mindset and spirituality is why we honor him. There is no liturgical service in the Orthodox Church in which his words are not mentioned. His words guide us in prayer centuries later because of him being so vulnerable and emotionally healthy that he wrote in, with such an, an open heart to God in such a real and authentic way that we use his words to guide us in personal and in communal prayer. Think about the words that we use to describe David. We say, these are the, we say, this is the Psalms by David, the prophet and king. May his blessings be with us. Amen. That we're asking for his blessing, that we're, we're working for the, the spirituality and heart and spirit of David to still be alive within us today. An early Christian by the name of St. Basil, 
in, in, in the year around 350 A.D., we honor uh, St. Basil tremendously and look at his writings, especially he is the author of the liturgy that we pray traditionally at the Coptic Orthodox Church, being the liturgy of St. Basil. See, he wrote m many of the words of this liturgy that we pray today. St. Basil said these words, Give heed, therefore, to thyself. Give heed, therefore, to thyself, that you may give heed to God. Give heed, therefore, to thyself, that you may give heed to God, to him, to whom be glory and power forever. Amen. What is St. Basil saying? Saying, be attentive to yourself in order for you, be, for you to be attentive to God. If you're attentive to yourself, then you're able to be attentive to God. When you're attentive to see what's going, going on inside within of us, all of us, that we're trying to mask and cover up just by being busy and noise and scrolling. If I give heed to myself, then I'm able to give heed to God. You're watching this because you decide to give heed to God. You're looking for something more. But it begins by giving heed to myself, then I can give heed to God then the only of the natural response that comes after that is for me to give glory to him. And this is an integral part to our prayer life, personal and in communal prayer in the ancient faith and our pre-denominational faith is that we give glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit now and ever and unto the ages of all ages. Amen. This is a common language that it's uttered in so much of our hymns and prayers in our church because we're giving glory to the triune God, giving glory to Him. But it begins for me to give worth to Him and not myself, for me to give glory to Him and not myself. It begins by me giving heed to myself. It has to begin with me looking inside of myself. Why am I really posting this? Why am I really waiting for someone to respond back to me? Why did I really say that witty comment? So forth and so on. What am I trying to cover up? This makes sense to me. Hopefully this makes sense to you. So, so stick with me on this. The Orthodox Church uses external stimulus for us to pursue God. Think about this for a second. Right now we're in a church. Or I'm in a church. Sorry, you're, you're watching. We're in a church right now. I'm in the church. And we're, I'm surrounded by art. I'm surrounded by iconography. This iconography, this ancient form of art, can stimulate me to pursue God. They're visuals for me to pursue the one who is invisible. The church, during liturgical services, uses incense. I'm able to use smell to engage me, to guide me. Even the posture of the way I pray, if it's a prostration, rebowing my head, or maybe even doing an external practice of doing the sign of the cross, which goes back centuries. Doing an external practice like this guides me or, or, or facilitates me to pursue God. These are external things that guide me to pursue God. I can also use external stimulus in this world for me to, to have clarity on the inner life. For example, if I ask myself, why am I always pulling out my phone when I don't want to deal with that difficult conversation? Why, like, why, if, why, to run away from my wife, I pull out my phone because I don't want to deal with that conversation. When I'm tired of my kids, I pull out my phone. Why, why am I naturally moving in that direction? What am I trying to cover up? What am I trying to run away from? Why am I like wanting to scroll away going to, before going to bed so I don't have to think? What am I trying to run away from? I can use something I do externally for that to be a trigger of maybe something I'm doing in my inner life. So I can use something external to pursue my inner life. And my prayer life, the church, also uses something external for me to pursue something internal. An ancient prayer book that we use in the Orthodox Church, specifically in the Coptic Orthodox Church, is something called the Egbeya. This Egbeya is vastly majority written by King David and his psalms and his journal, his prayer book. And we use his words till today. And even in the morning prayers, 
we use something in the language that goes along along these lines is lord just as light bursts forth into this world to give light and life to this world lord i want your light to shine within the darkest parts of who i am so i can use what i see visual i can see light i can and i can also use that to for for me to pursue and refine my inner life as saint basil said if i give heed to myself i give heed to god and I can only, from then, from there, I only offer him praise and glory forever. Amen. But it begins within myself. I can use external factors, external stimulus, external posture, ex external prayer book, for, then, for that to trigger within me a new, inner, refined life. I would love for myself, I would love for all of us to use this prayer guide book in our own personal prayer, in our own personal refinement, for us to be emotionally healthy, instead of us masking issues in our life by scrolling away and trying to avoid reality. But if I can take the, 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 the anxiety, the issues, the questions I have in this world, if I can take that pain and I take the, that weight, instead of me just covering it up by, by Netflix and shows and scrolling and just a busy lifestyle, if I can come with vulnerability, as David did, as so many early Christians did, and they found refinement, they found restoration, they found new life by coming to God, I can do the same. So I'd love for us to do the same, but let's keep it simple right now. I want you to be vulnerable with yourself in stillness, in silence. Complete these three sentences. I want, I need, I surrender. I want X, Y, Z. I need X, Y, and Z. I surrender X, Y, and Z. You want to put that in writing? Great. You want to write that on your phone? I don't care. You want to say it out loud in the car to yourself? Great. I want. I need. I surrender. This is a very similar template that we see in a lot of David's writings. But if I can come to God in a very vulnerable way, not masking emotions or issues, but I can come on a venerable way and I can come to the love of my heavenly father and say, I want, be real. What do you want? Be real. What do, I, what do you really need? And then ask a tougher question. What do you surrender? What do I surrender to the love of God the father who loves you and me beyond belief? I pray we can put this not just in theory, but into practice for us to come in stillness and silence in a vulnerable way to God with those three points. Let us bow our heads for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we are grateful that we have the records of, of the lives of these two men, of Saul and David, so different. They had their own issues like we do, but their response to the issues and the conflicts in this world is where we can find life. Just as David found restoration in his life, and we honor him because of that, Lord, if he can do it, we can do it. Lord, I pray that we can be vulnerable with ourselves and just ask ourselves the, and, and, and answer this in prayer. What do we want? What do we need? And what do we surrender? That if I can begin with those questions with myself, this is how I can find life. This is how I can take one step closer to being emotionally healthy.
Through the prayers of your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you guys for watching. If you're looking for the Igbeya, either the physical book or you want to listen to the audio, the links are in the description of this YouTube video and description on the podcast. Have a great week, everybody.